welcome to the Beltway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and a contributor at places like The Dispatch, where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis along with the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link. Or you can go use the links in the show notes, which are available at any time by going into them for the links in your podcast player. Finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's great, but it would be better for the show if you went to iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you can get your podcasts and leave a review. Those five-star reviews help new listeners and readers like you find us, and I always look forward to reading those reviews when they come in. So in this week's show, we're going to talk about how the protests how they've gone from important issues where we were talking about real reform that was needed to just another round in the progressive versus conservative culture wars that go on each week. And then after that, in the next segment, we will go and cover the latest numbers on the coronavirus and talk about why cases are going up now and what to make of some of the counterintuitive findings in those numbers, like the the counterintuitive things you'll find with hospitalizations and deaths while cases are going up. So we're going to talk through all of that in the second segment of the show. But to start out today, we're going to go into the protests. And we've sort of been covering these protests as they've sort of evolved over time. There was the first part, when I first wrote about them, it was about trying to find solutions to police brutality and issues of police reform overall. I think a lot of this goes hand in hand with finding different ways to reform some of these major areas of contention, places like police reform and education reform, where things like government power and large unions stand in the way. But these protests are still continuing. We're now at the end of June, and a month later, since these protests started, they are still continuing and going through the different places in America. In fact, there was a viral video, as I was just getting on here, of uh, of protesters marching into a private, what looks like a private community in St. Louis, and it looks like there's an attempt to make a, a white couple go viral who were brandishing guns out in front of their house. I think there's a question of whether or not the protesters were walking onto public or private property, but we shall see. I'm not sure, but that is just one of the latest of many different things that are happening with these protests. So the protests originally occurred over police brutality, police misconduct, and more. And those initial protests are now no longer about fixing any actual problems. Now, you can go into these protests and find individuals who want these things, but for the most part, we've gone well beyond that, especially when you start including social media and the reactions of people across the board. Now, it's just about progressives remaking culture into their own image. And the religious overtones I'm using there are for a reason, because 
there's, as I wrote in the newsletter this week, there is a religious fervor to what is happening here, where people are tearing down monuments. Any monuments, it's not really anything. It's anything that is standing, that stands as a sign of an institution, that stands as a sign of where we claim our institutions get their power. That is what is being attacked now. It's not just Confederate statues, which reflect a an a a lost cause, a, a bad moment in American history. Now it's everything. It's everything that represents the institutional integrity, the wholeness of our government and our institutions. So they are trying to tear everything down, and then they want to rebuild everything in the progressive image of America. So it's this new secularization where everything everything old is stripped down for everything they deem is new. Now, if you know anything about progressive culture, you know that each generation would end up doing this. There's nothing woke enough that they could ever come up with that would ever survive anything that they construct. There, there's just absolutely nothing. Each generation is expected to be woker than the next. So the things that are built by this generation would be raised down to the ground by the next. So there's nothing that they could build that would last. So there is this sort of religious component here. Where they want to. It's not just about tearing down bad things. It's about tearing down everything to rebuild things in the progressive image. And I think that this is happening, and I've got a column coming out late Monday that'll cover this point. This this shift that we're seeing from asking for reforms and going to this culture war, this is happening for a reason, and it's happening on the left. The far left on this issue is intellectually bankrupt. They've run these cities and they've run some of these states and these police departments for half a century. These are their systems. These are their technocratic designs that perpetuate the systemic racism that so many black Americans describe experiencing on a first-hand basis. These are progressive institutions that are doing this. If you go into Minneapolis and look at their police department, if you look at their city, their current mayor, who is a millennial progressive, far left in his own right, who's being accused of doing all these wrong things, this is the progressive reckoning, where they're having to face up to the fact that these are their systems, these are their ideas that have been put in place, and these are the things that are getting protested against. And even though there have been many protests in the past, none of these far-left leaders or any of these progressive leaders have offered any solutions to this point. So we're here at this moment, this progressive moment, where they are bankrupt and without any solutions. So we've moved from talking about you know, actual police reforms, things where we could do, to moving towards this cultural thing. We went from talking about even the outlandish idea of defunding the police, which at least at a minimum was on the point of where the issue was, which was how police force was being used, police power, to moving towards cultural war. Where now we're talking about brand names and everything else. And we're, there, I mean, it's just getting ridiculous at this point because they're attacking statues, brand ambassadors, and, and now the, cra- the craziest thing I think I've seen so far is that they're attacking the name of 
a master bedroom because the term master bedroom apparently indicates old slave mentalities. And so now they've gone beyond attacking real issues issues to attacking shadows and dust. There's nothing here that's substantive of what they're attacking. They're pretending to make progress, but there's nothing here that they're changing. When black people were started protesting over this, they were protesting because George Floyd was murdered by an unaccountable police force in a major U.S. city in the United States of America. They protested because Ahmaud Arbery was shot and killed by former law enforcement officials who uttered racial epithets over his dead body. They protested because Breonna Taylor was wrongly killed in a no-knock home raid. And then you have even the most recent one where Elijah McClain, who died in 2019, we're only now learning about his death and how police treated him because of these protests over, and the emphasis here is on police brutality. So that's the point of these protests, but we've moved so far down the line here onto other issues that don't matter that it's pretty clear this is happening because progressives do not have any solutions. And so we're going into these other areas where they think, oh, we have cultural power, we can do this, uh, these other things, maybe that will make a difference. But it won't. They won't do anything at all. The protests covered the deaths of these other people. They did not cover all these other ridiculous things that we're now talking about. They talked. The protests were about the murders. They were. They were. It's about getting mistreated by police. It's about being mistreated by upper class white communities when people move there. Hitting things like statues, removing episodes of the Golden Girls, and other and other things like that. That is not progress. It's not progress at all. It's not a solution. It provides nothing of value. And so we're here at this point because there are no solutions being offered, and the only thing that we have left are these empty outrages. Because you have black people going around marching and asking for changes, real changes to police departments, to you know educational systems, it very you know things that have things we can change. People are not marching because the Golden Girls or 30 Rock or anything like that has a so-called episode with blackface in it. That's not why people are marching. They're marching because there are real civil rights at play here. And so the progressive movement has jumped the shark, and they've jumped it because they don't have a way to solve this. The only thing they could come up with was defund the police and try to rewrite everything from the ground up. That's not what has to happen here. As I wrote, all you have to do is go and start challenging some of these things that progressives built. Qualified immunity came from the Warren Court. It is a liberal idea. It is not something that is a part of overall statutory law. It was a case law thing. And when you go back and you look at this past term, Clarence Thomas was the only justice willing to take up that issue. Now, we know other conservative justices have talked about it in the past, but the liberals of that court have not really raised a finger to touch the doctrine of qualified immunity. You have other things like, you know, getting poli- hitting, going after police unions. 
Because right now, you can't get rid of a bad police officer in most police departments across the United States. Fixing that involves weakening the power of police unions. Now, I would get rid of them entirely, but other people think that you can just change it to where police unions don't have any say in disciplinary matters. I think you just need to get rid of the whole thing because you need to get rid of these these this barrier between enacting reform in a, in a state institution. Because police and teachers and these other things that have public sector unions at them, these are public servants. They work at the pleasure of the state to enforce the standards that the state sets out. These things should not be up for debate, and there should not be any, there should, there's no ability to strike here or change what legislators, what elected officials are trying to do through here. So there are ways that we can get there, but we've got to address key issues here. And qualified immunity, that is something that the left built. Public sector unions, that is a big thing for the left. It's a sacred cow, one of those things that they don't want to touch. Reforming these police departments in a real way where they become a part of the community is something that only a handful of places have done. And it's not being done in all these blue cities. So more has to be done and more needs to be done. But what we've witnessed here recently was that when a solution was offered by Republicans in the Senate, Democrats walked out. Republicans had at the beginnings of the bill in the Senate, in the U.S. Senate, with Senator Tim Scott leading the way on that with uh, his Justice Act, and Democrats walked out on it. Republicans offered 20 amendments to Democrats. At first they said, well, we need these five changes, and Scott offered that to them. And then they, he figured out, well, they really wanted 20 different changes to it. So he gave them that. And not only that... Tim Scott and Mitch McConnell gave Democrats the chance to walk into an amendment process where they could chuck out the entire bill and start from scratch just to start a debate on the topic of criminal justice reform and getting some of these changes hammered out. Democrats walked out. So what they did instead was they passed something in the House that they knew would not get any support from any Republicans anywhere because they purposely left out Republicans in the matter. This is If this sounds familiar, it should, because you can go back to the impeachment process where instead of trying to win Republicans over to help win a majority to actually impeach the president, Pelosi just rammed the thing through on a totally partisan basis and didn't allow any request by House Republicans, which is why even those Republicans who were retiring declined to jump on board with impeachment. Even those we know don't like the president, they refused to support it because there was no evidence that they could point to that say, hey, yeah, we need to do this because of this. They railroaded it. And so this is what Pelosi did here, too. It's not their, The House bill wouldn't fix anything, and it certainly isn't bipartisan. So now we're left at square one, where Democrats passed a House bill because that's what they're going to run on during the election. They don't want to solve anything. That was totally an electoral move. And now we're left with nothing. Where, Because if you're going to pass legislation, you have to have the House, Senate, and the presidency. The Republicans, because they have the House and the Senate, I mean the Senate and the presidency, had negotiated something out with the White House to get the start of something. That's where you've got to start. If you've got to get all three branches, it's pretty good if you get two out of the three. And Democrats didn't want to offer anything, they didn't offer any amendments, and they didn't want to jump into the amendment process. So that is on them. We have no solutions now 
on this process on a federal level because Democrats chose not to sign on to any solutions. No negotiations, no amendments. They want it to be a campaign issue. You'll see him walk out and, you know, bow for George Floyd and, and Kente Cloth. They'll support the protests. But when push comes to shove, they've done nothing. They've done nothing on the federal level. They've done nothing in these cities. Now, I think we actually have a chance here on the right and conservatives to establish real and lasting change because for the first time in a very long time, Republicans are open to doing something on this issue. But instead... Leaders are ignoring it, or they just want to do nothing. So right now, we are looking at the height of cowardness in Congress, because people do not want to solve this problem. And that means we're going to go without solutions. And if you don't have solutions going, going forward here, that means we're going to return to these moments until we address them. That means there's going to be another police-involved shooting of a black person, unfortunately, and we're going to be right back here at square one because we've refused to address this issue in the past. And that's, a, that's the real shame here. We're not going to move forward because our leaders don't want to move forward. There's a real chance to do here. We know Republicans have been willing in the past to do things because they passed the first step back, which the Brennan Center called a historic piece of legislation. So there is an emphasis here where people are willing to do things. But because people are walking out, we can't do anything. And so you have cowards and you have people who want to play electoral politics instead of solving an issue that people are still marching about a month later. So that's where we are. We have an intellectually bankrupt side of the country with no solutions and no desire to negotiate solutions. And we're not going to go anywhere. So that means we're probably going to end up back here. Because if you don't get if you don't see any any legislation, if you don't see any changes in these cities, you still have reason to march. So we're not going anywhere. And that is a very sad thing. So when we get back to the break, we'll go through the latest of the coronavirus numbers. So the coronavirus is resurging now. What do we need to make from this resurgence? I think to go to, to answer that question, first you have to go through the top line numbers, which we've done every week here and we're going to do again here. So the top line numbers this week is that we've run 31 million tests overall. In just the past week, Sunday to Sunday, we've run 3.9 million tests. So we're closing in on 4 million in the span of a week. If that keeps growing, we could hit 5 million. That would be a very nice milestone to hit, which is astounding considering where we started. So every day this past week but one, in the last seven days, we've hit at a minimum 500,000 tests. At a minimum. And two of those days, we were well over 600,000. So we have definitely increased the amount of testing that we were doing. But more testing, because, you know, I've pointed out many times here in the, in the, over the past few months, is that more testing will bring out more, more positive cases. So sheer volume doesn't always tell you the truth. But in this case... It's telling us a little bit because the, we know that testing overall is not explaining the surge in cases that 
we're seeing because the overall positivity rate is also going up. So that's the measure that I've, I kept keep telling you to, to watch for because if you're testing more but your positivity rate is going up, that means you're not just that you're getting more cases, but that the virus is beginning to surge some. So two weeks ago, just for a reference point, when we hit the lowest point of the positivity rates, that was two weeks ago, and I, and I realized the media was already, you know, they were scaremongering then that there were, there were just a ton of cases. And that, but up until that, up until two weeks ago, the only reason that you would have thought that we had a lot of cases was because we were testing a lot more people, and that's because our positivity rate at that point had dropped to four point four percent across the United States. So the bulk, the large mass majority of all tests were coming back negative, and only 4.4% were coming back with a positive result. So that's fantastic, because it's been far worse in the past. But the problem is now, from two weeks from that point to now, it's now at 6.6%, and trending higher. It's been sort of this slow slope back up from two weeks ago, and that 6.6% is the highest rate we've seen since the end of May. So keep that little data point there in your mind, because we really bottomed out on the positivity rate at the end of May. Now, with that, the death rate is still trending down, and the hospitalizations, while up slightly, they're not crazy. So hospitalizations and deaths are largely fine across the country. You, If you're in Tennessee, I've pointed out that we've seen a surge here in the last four to five days, which is concerning because that could lead to more pressure being placed on the hospital system. System In Tennessee, the current active caseload at the peak, which was in like April to May, was around an average of 400 COVID cases across the entire hospital system. Right now, we're sitting above 500, probably closer to 600 now, or at least getting close to that. So that's a sign that just we're seeing a surge of more serious cases now come in along with the extra cases that are coming in. But that's just in Tennessee. So, and the the positivity rate, if you want to go look at that up, that's from Johns Hopkins. So they are tracking this across the United States. So the seven-day rolling average is showing that we've gone from 4.4% to 6.6% with a trend slope that goes up. So that means we're getting just straight up more cases and the virus is spreading more as a result of, you know, whatever the underlying currents are here. Now, as I've hammered on here consistently, it's hard to have in the midst of all this a firm idea of why this is happening because we do not have good contact tracing. We don't know where these cases are coming from or why. It could be that one state is seeing another. It could be any variety number of things that could be happening here. But there are some evidence in some areas we can look at here. So as I said, the virus is spreading. And one way to read that is that the spread is happening mostly in places that did not have a large spike in March and April. There's a caveat to that, though, because you'll hear people point that. I think Andrew Cuomo in New York, governor of New York, he's he's calling this a continual first wave because some of these other states didn't have a quote-unquote spike like New York. Now, that, there's an important caveat to that 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 really doesn't capture 
the truth of those months because in March and April, we did not have the testing capacity in really any of the winter or spring to know how pervasive the virus was across the United States. That's why we had to institute a nationwide lockdown. We had no idea where the virus was and how pervasive it was. So it was just all guesswork. So now, as we're looking at these states now, this could be a continuation of the first wave because these states didn't have a spike. Or it could be a second wave where this is a second spike and we didn't weren't able to track what happened the first time around. We just simply won't know. And we won't know until you start getting some of those serological um, those tests going out widespread where you know exactly what's happened in a community or in a state, and, and along with future studies. We're just not going to know the answer to that for some time. And while we're in the moment, we absolutely don't know the answer to it, just because we don't have the testing to know. That's why I harped forever that we had to get testing ramped up and ramped up quickly because we needed to know where the virus was. Now, we do know where it is now, and we're testing more and more and more, and there are some signs that we can maybe get up to maybe be hitting about a million tests, maybe one to two million tests in a day. That's going to be like a month or two off at most, but there's some talk of a thing called pool testing that could really enhance the capacity of us to test a lot of people at one shot. So uh, we don't know if this is a first or second wave. That's all guesswork. But we do know that the virus is spreading. So we have to keep all of that in mind as we sort of look through how this is spreading, why it's spreading, and and more. Now, as I said before, you had to keep the the end of May in the back of your mind earlier because that's when the killing of George Floyd happened. It was the very end of May, and the protests started the very next day in Minneapolis, and they spread elsewhere. And it's just hard to avoid the conclusion that the protests are not a major cause of this because many of these states, you know, places like Florida, Texas, Tennessee, Colorado, places that are experiencing surge now, they started reopening at the end of April, 1st of May. That's when they did their phase one's reopenings. And by the end of May, they were into phase two or phase three. So some of these states have been open for quite some time now. And in the way this, this lines up on a time scale, if reopening was the sole cause of why you were seeing, if, if you know, a quote-unquote reckless reopening was the reason for why you were seeing a new spread, you would have seen evidence for that before the end of June. We would not be looking at this at the middle of June and saying, well, something happened that would have caused us to start getting you know, a larger amount of readings in the middle of June, and that's where the spread came from. It, that's too far removed from, from the reopenings to lay that at the feet of Phase 1 reopenings. So there has to have been an intervening event to have caused this to happen. And it's just hard to read the data any other way. And one of the other points here is that Minnesota's testing, if you look at them, all the tests for all age groups for them is, is trending and currently trending down on COVID-19, except one. One age group shot up, and that was the age group of 20 to 29. And they went from, they spiked. I mean, it, seriously, the only thing you call it is a spike. They went from representing around 20% of the overall positive cases to near 40. 
So you have a situation. We know it's not school. We know it's not college. It's the middle of summer. And a lot of, you know, a lot of these places, they, people, they don't have jobs either because a lot of those, you know, college type jobs where you're working either retail or restaurant or something like that, they're not open to the same extent that they are. So you have to find an explanation for this surge of people in the 20 to 29 year old category are getting the virus are getting positive cases. And the only major thing you can point to are these protests. That is the only major intervening event that explains what is happening here. And even if it's not them getting it at at these protests, what these protests have have done is lower the just lower people's their propensity to wear masks and follow social distancing and just all these other things. So there's just there's really no other thing to point to right now that I can see that explains why they were seeing an explosion of cases. And even and if you look in, at the hospitalization, the age range of people, if your state breaks down the hospitalizations of people who are in there, Florida is one of them, by the way. Florida has an excellent data gathering operation. You might not have heard that in the media, but everybody I know on both sides of the political aisle who follow data love Florida's gathering, data gathering operation. If you look at them, the hospitalization age range shows the same thing. These are all young kids, or at least young adults. So the incubation period suggests the virus was gotten in early June, especially those first two weeks of June. That is where these cases are coming from. So you have to look at those first two weeks and say, what happened? What was different from those two weeks that was different from the rest of May that is causing a spike? The only thing I've got are these protests. That's all I've got. Because you can't blame it on reopening when that started in May. If you were going to see, you can take, May is a perfect example of this. If the reopening, if a reckless reopening, as the media has called it in places like Florida and Texas, if that was the reason, you would have seen a spike in May. In fact, you would have seen a spike at least by the end of the second, but at least by the third and fourth weeks. You would have seen the spikes in both cases and hospitalizations. And even in, and now, since we're into June, at the end of June, we would have seen a spike in deaths by now, just due to how this works out. Because hospitalizations and deaths, those are lagging indicators. And that's why, you know, one of the things people are looking at now is why is the overall death rate in the United States going down and why are hospitalizations largely in check while we have all these cases? And that's because hospitalizations and deaths are lagging indicators. It takes time to get the virus, to then get tested, to get hospitalized, and then potentially die from it. You're, you're working down this long chain of events. This is not a fast disease. A new surge for this typically takes 7 to 10 days to show up in testing results because you're you're trying to spread as wide of a net as you can with these testing things, but it's still going to take 7 to 10 days for it to show up in your data to know that something is happening. And then from there, after somebody gets it, it's going to take another 7 to 10 days for them to show up in hospitalization data. So now you're talking two to to three weeks later where you're saying, okay, you know, we, we now know that hospitalizations are spiking. And then with deaths... 
At a minimum, it's another 7 to 10 days, but it could be even longer because the time it takes for you to get the virus in a hospital and end up dead from it is going to take some time. I know I saw some some stat a while back. It was like four to five weeks is what it took, maybe longer, because for this virus to kill you, it's going to take some time. And that w- those estimates were based on the time when our treatment was bad and we didn't know how to handle it. Right now, we have a lot better idea of how to handle it, and we actually have some drugs and some therapies that could handle handle this sickness better. So the caveat to all of this and all this, because you would expect if things were to happen like before, let's say this is the second wave, if things were happening exactly like the first wave, you would expect there to be a delay here where hospitalizations go up, we have to do some kind of quasi-shutdown or targeted type of shutdown to get it to go back down, and then from the hospitalizations, you would expect deaths to eventually go back up. That could happen. We could see some more deaths happen here. But the caveat to that is that the bulk of these deaths that happened with COVID-19 happened in a much older age range. So typically you had to be, you know, basically 55 and older before death became a very serious threat. If you're below that, you could get very, very sick. You could even show effects of the virus after you were healthy. But you were unlikely to die. And the caveat here is that this is a, what we're seeing right now in our hospitalizations is that it's a much younger cohort that is sick. Whereas before, if you were looking at hospitalization rates, the average age was around 55. Now it's, it's closer to 30, 32. So that means that we have stronger immune systems at play and a less at-risk population in the hospitals. So... That could mean a couple of things. It could mean it, that people recover quicker, so that our recoveries could spike up. It could mean that if people, somebody is going to die, it's going to take them much longer, so it could prolong how long it takes for deaths to show up in statistics. And, you know, it, it just could be any number of things that could happen here, because it's not the same. The, the way this virus is impacting communities is not the same. It's not the same type of person as it was in New York, California, et cetera, et cetera. So, with that, thinking through all those issues, the big question that I have moving forward is this. If this spike is the result of these protests, and it's not the result of reopening, if you get the protests to die down, does that mean that the viral spread will slow down too? And I don't know the answer to that. I haven't seen any expert talk about that. This is literally just me sitting here spitballing. Because if, you, if the cause of your spike is gone and you get rid of that, or people just stop going out to the extent that they were, could you also get the viral spread to slow down as well? Now, you could just see it continue on exponentially just because you had this, this moment here where everybody caused a larger spread, and so now it's going to sweep through regardless of what we do. That is also a possibility. But it's also possible that if people are wearing masks, social distancing, and washing their hands, and they get more you know, assiduous about that, that you could see this being a temporary blip where the protests cause the spike, but people reining those in causes the viral spread to slow back down again. Because we're still seeing results. I mean, the results you're seeing now really are only telling the, the story of the first two weeks in June. Now we're maybe getting in a little bit into the third third week of June when you're talking about new cases. So 
there's just a lag here where you're trying to figure out what happened in this period of time, what could have triggered these events. It's not whatever's happening right now or whatever could happen in the future is not the story. Every news story that starts out and shows you a beach shot is a bad journalistic piece. The beaches are not what's causing this. You could get a case from the beach, but it's very low. It would have to be extremely crowded, and you would have to be incredibly dumb and in how you distance yourself there to get this disease on a beach. Outdoors is not the issue. It's indoors that is the issue here. There's also the question of, since we're in summer, could the virus be spreading as a result of people heading back indoors? Because if you live in an area where it's warmer or incredibly warm, you can't just stay outside. There's some evidence that all those early studies that people were talking about, about the virus being affected by temperature, it wasn't actually temperature that was involved. It was that when it got warmer, people stopped staying indoors. They went outside. So that made it harder for the virus to spread. So it's not exactly temperature that's the, the culprit here. It's you know, affecting the virus. It's whether or not people are inside or outside. Because in the South, you know, hot, humid, everything, you don't want to go outside, so you're more likely to stay indoors, which will make it easier for the virus to spread. So it could be we see, it's not the protest, but it could be that you hit June and you're in, you know, Texas or Florida or Louisiana or Arizona, you're not going to go outside because it's literally unsafe to go outside in that kind of heat and stay out there just to stay safe from a virus. You have to go indoors somewhere. So it could be this reverse thing because one of the reasons people think the flu spreads so prevalently in the winter is because people are all indoors then too. So it allows it an easier access to jump around from person to person. And we could be seeing a reverse version of that here, where people going indoors in the summer causes a viral spread. So there are a lot of questions here. You know, there, there's temperatures, there's indoor-outdoor, there's if it's just the protest and you take out the protest out of the equation, do the numbers revert to normal? There are a lot of questions here that go unanswered, and we don't know the answers to it, and we're not going to get them for quite some time. We don't know if, you know, this virus impacting a younger population, if that's going to impact our overall hospitalization or death numbers. It's still too early to tell that. It is not too early to know, though, that we are dealing with a surge here. That is definitely happening just because the overall positivity rate is going up while we are dramatically increasing the number of tests we're doing every single day. So... The surge is there. The question is, how do you read it? And we don't know yet. I know in Tennessee they didn't report any testing results on Sunday because they said the system was down and that was affecting everyone nationwide. So that could mean that you're going to see a, a surge of numbers come out on Monday when you're probably going to be listening to this podcast. If that happens, you're going to see a surge of numbers just because there's going to be a, a double amount of information coming out. You're going to have Saturday, Sunday and Monday coming out at the same time, which is two days' worth of information. And when you're when nationally, if you're testing you know, 500,000 people a day, that means you're going to have, you could have close to a million come in. I don't know if that's going to be the case because when I looked at the COVID tracking project, they had results for Sunday and I used them to tally up my top line numbers. So I don't know if true that was only true of just Tennessee or elsewhere, but it is something to keep in mind. Another thing to keep in mind, too, which was, and I'll leave this as my parting thought as we end off here, is this Saharan dust storm that hit the southeastern United States. A friend pointed out that if you have 
asthma or any other bad breathing problem, this Sahara dust storm was a very bad situation. And I know it hit me. I had headaches. I had trouble breathing. It was just bad all around. I ended up staying indoors all day just because I couldn't handle all the dust in the air. And it just it made the air really heavy. And her point was that if this was bad, she had asthma and this was really bad for her. She was having trouble just straight up breathing. That if COVID-19 is also a lung disease, we could see an uptick of people ending up in a hospital just because their symptoms, even though they could probably in a normal situation handle the coronavirus, just because they had to deal with that plus the Saharan dust storm, that could impact their ability to breathe and send them into a hospital. So that is something to watch too. You, we could be watching a surge in numbers because people who have it and are otherwise fine couldn't deal with both of those factors at the same time. And we could just see a spike of people, you know, in general, ending up because of the dust storm. So there are a lot of things here that are impacting the numbers. There are a lot of variables, and we're not going to know the answers for a few days. So, you, you know, the, the lesson of the day when it comes to this is in so many situations is just to remain humble and remember that you could be wrong in a lot of this. There are so many moving parts and so many people who pretend to be experts, and I'm certainly not one, but I know how to read some of these numbers and I know some of the variables involved here which are going to impact how you make a conclusion from data. It's kind of like how you read the information for you know building a weather forecast or you know you're building an election forecast on polls and other things. And I've talked about this in the past. There's just a lot of things you have to take into account. And if you're not doing that and you're trying to make a simplified answer, you're probably going to come up with the wrong answer. So some variables to keep in mind as you watch more data come in for this next week. That's all I've got for today's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information in the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning. So make sure to sign up before that, and you will get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I will see you guys in the next episode. 